Please identify yourself before asking the question. My name is Mark Sandylands. Back in the 1980s, there was a bumper sticker that said, and pardon my uh, use of Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, words for uh, bodily fluids, but uh, the sign said, Please, Lord, grant me another boom. This time I promise not to piss it away. Well, we did get another boom, and we did piss it away. Mm-hmm. What would a Wild Rose Alliance government do to get Alberta off this roller coaster ride of boom and bust? Would it take any different approach to uh, revenue handling than mm-hmm. the current government has? Mm-hmm. It's a great question, and there's, there's two ways that I'll answer it. Number one, I'll say that we haven't missed the opportunity. We're on the cusp of a third boom that I think if we can get the right policies in place, we'll be able to capitalize on it. Let me just talk a bit about the oil sands. I have a suspicion we'll probably have, be able to return to this topic later. But just to give you an under, just to, to give some of the details that I've heard from the Canadian Energy Research Institute about what we can expect the oil sands will generate in royalty revenue. They're talking about, by 2012-13, 2 to $3 billion of resource revenue coming in from the oil sands. Over the next 35-year period, by, 19, by 2043, we should be up to $55 billion per year in royalty revenues. Over that 35-year period, we stand to generate $800 billion in royalty revenues. Now, the idea of allowing the progressive conservative government to steward that resource wealth over the next 40 years, I I think it leaves me as unsettled as it might leave you, Mark. So there is another opportunity for us to be able to make sure we get it right the third time around. And I'll give credit to to the liberals. We were talking about this at the table, that the liberals have been responsible for some of the more sensible policies that have come forward in this government in the last couple of years, the Sustainability Fund. It's true. I mean, the Sustainability Fund was a Kevin, Kevin Taft idea, I believe, that they've been talking for years, as has Paul, about the 30%, putting at least 30% of resource revenues aside so that we can save it for our long-term prosperity. We don't have as firm a target. Maybe it needs to be 30. Maybe it needs to be 50. But it certainly needs to be more than what it is right now. So I think that the, there's an awful lot of opportunity going forward. The second thing I'll say is that we would not be in the situation we are today if they had only held spending in line with inflation plus population growth. The idea that we have to lurch back and forth between overspending and cuts is, I think, what causes the disruption. If we could just slow the rate of year-over-year increases, we would be able to manage through these increases and decreases in resource revenue. It would result in larger surpluses at the end of the year because we know that we would end up with windfall resource revenues, but that's a good problem to have. At the end of the year when you've got money in the bank, then you can start deciding whether or not you want to build the extra road or hospitals or bridges or schools. Going this way, the way we have, where we make a ton of in-year spending, where we overspend to the point where we wouldn't actually even be able to make our budget balance this year, I think that's just a sign of chronic mismanagement of our finances. The fact that we've had a decline in resource revenue has actually just exposed the mismanagement of the PC government. They were able to hide it for a long time because we had such high royalty revenues. I think people now see that we've got to make some fundamental structural change in the way we manage the books. Next question, please. Danielle, my name is Tom Kane, and I appreciate your uh, comments about wanting to listen to the concerns and issues of people. I think there are three examples that I have of not listening that I want to just 
briefly mention in, in uh, requesting you to speak about your uh, environmental policy, which you were silent about as you talked about all these other things. Um, the citizens of Alberta in an Ipsos Reid poll last spring said 78% were in favor of even using subsidies for renewable energy. Uh, the Alberta study on nuclear power found 55% were against the use of nuclear power and 75% of participants had serious concerns about the health impacts, um, and yet the government goes ahead with nuclear. Mm -hmm. Municipal councils were, uh, I think they listened to people better than MLAs, mm -hmm. and so we started in Lethbridge a, a movement to try and get Getting renewable please. energy going. Mm -hmm. And so the question then is three parts, uh, three aspects of environmental issues, and you were quiet about environmental issues. Global warming and climate change, mm -hmm. uh, renewable energy, mm -hmm. and the use of nuclear power. Okay. So where are you going with, sure. with that? Great question. Um, we have said publicly that we think the science of man-made emissions causing global warming is unsettled. And I think we've seen over the last number of, uh, of weeks and months that there is a vibrant scientific debate going on about the extent to which man-made emissions are causing warming, the extent to which it will be mild versus catastrophic, the extent to which we should adapt versus spending money to be able to address the problem. And I, I think that the, the approach that we would prefer to see taken, while there is this scientific debate raging on, is we don't want to do anything that's costly or stupid. And I think carbon capture and storage and cap and trade these are both programs that are costly and stupid. Yeah. At the <laughs> On cap and trade, I'll say, if you look at the report that came out from the TD Bank in conjunction with the Suzuki Foundation, they talked about it imposing costs on the economy of 50, $46 billion per year to be able to institute the program. That is going to fall on consumers. Uh, in, the cap in, in the instance of carbon capture and storage, we have a $2 billion fund that's been set up. There were 50 projects that were put forward, I believe, to, to receive access to that funding. Only three were chosen. How are we supposed to know that government chose the right three? In fact, I can probably guarantee you that they didn't choose the right three. We also heard from Jim Carter, who had the blue ribbon panel on this issue. He talked about how we would actually just, uh, that the $2 billion was a drop in the bucket. We'd need to spend $3 billion per year for the next eight years, and we might not have usable technology for 15 or 20 years. So here we are contemplating spending another $25 billion. So I think those two approaches are flawed approaches. But that doesn't mean that we do nothing. I think there's a lot of goodwill on the part of consumers. There's a lot of goodwill on the part of industry to find ways to green their processes for a lot of good reasons, not just because they're concerned about the environment. They're also concerned about saving money. We have a, an opportunity now with natural gas prices being as low as they are to be able to get a triple win here. Our natural gas producers could benefit from seeing an increase in demand for their product. And the way we would increase the demand for the product is, is one of the approaches Encana is, is uh, endorsing. This is also similar to the Pickens plan in the U.S., where you start switching out of diesel and gasoline into natural gas to power vehicles. They say that can result in a 29% reduction in emissions. Or you switch out of coal-fired plants for electricity into natural gas-fired plants for electricity. I, my understanding is that could save 40% on emissions overall. There's also an incredible opportunity with microgeneration units, whether it's 
solar powers on solar power panels on your roof, whether it's wind turbines, whether it's these smaller um, natural gas units in your home that can also produce electricity, whether it's geothermal, whether it's biomass. There's a ton of additional new microgeneration and distributed generation opportunities that mean we don't have to rely on coal anymore the way we did in the past. <laughs> Next question, please. And I'll just so, so that gives you some idea of where I would go with renewables. I think part of what we're seeing with the oil sands is if you're going to try to reduce emissions, oil sands would not be the place that you would start. You would start by looking at what comes out of the back of tailpipes, and you'd start by looking at how you can green your electricity system. It's striking to me that the Americans are pointing at our oil sands and talking about the footprint. Well, I'd like to point back at them and say, how much coal-fired electricity do you have in the eastern states? I'm struck by the uh, editorial cartoon that I saw a few, a few months ago. They have this huge, big stack of the emissions coming out of China, another huge stack of the emissions coming out of U.S. coal plants, and a tiny little stack of the emissions coming out of, out of uh, oil sands production. Uh, I can go on about oil sands, but I'll wait for another question because I think I'm going to get cut off here. I hope that answers as, as much as you needed. Thank you. My name is James Moore. I have a very specific question about a local issue, but it has provincial implications. Uh, the, one of the cuts, in fact, the most mindless and ugliest cut of all in the uh, provincial budget is cutting... $400,000, which will result in shutting the Kainai Correction Center and community programming on Siksika and Tsutsina. Mm. These programs are mm-hmm. successful. The recidivism rate is half the mainstream population. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fact that the people who are offenders are in minimum security, working with the community, yeah. and being rehabilitated is amazing. And they're going to have to push them back into uh, medium security, which mm-hmm. is more expensive. Mm-hmm. This is causing a lot of consternation, and I, I want to tell you and, and ask your support in the legislature through your caucus, but also the people of Lethbridge should be aware of this. This is, this is a, a, an ugly move, and, a, and to me, it's, it shows they know nothing yep. about what's happening there. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I hadn't heard about the cut to that particular program, but I, I think... Excuse me, I just want to say that this is, this is slated to be shut... Uh, the end of March. Okay. So this is an urgent issue. Have, I'll just uh, make sure. I notice Paul's taking a, a note of it so that we can raise it in the in the legislature. But I, I have to say it's a it's a pattern of behavior that we're seeing with the government. Up in Edmonton, you probably recall reading before the Christmas break that they were cutting off toiletries and treats to the people who lived in the uh, Alberta. Uh, Alberta Hospital, the mental health facility, to save, what was it, $70,000 or something? It was just a tiny, tiny amount of money. If you look at our alternative budget, you'll see that we don't believe that cutting, that that, those are the types of programs that should be cut. Those kind of community-based programs are exactly the type of programs that ought to be supported. If you want to find cuts, you would find them in cutting the supports for private industry. We have a number of ways in which government's gotten back into the business of business. Cut there. Cut the $44 million in managers' bonuses. Let's start cutting the administration in, uh, in the bureaucracy. The, the problem is that we've got a government that is it's relying, I think, far too much on 
internal advisors in Edmonton when they're making decisions. And this is the, the fundamental problem with the way government has operating under the PCs, is that they continue to centralize decision-making, and it gets them out of touch with what's happening in the local community. If you make sure that the decision-making and the resources are left in the community, you'll be able to ensure that you've got the money to be able to support programs like the one you're talking about. I think the best people to make those decisions are the ones here. And I think it must be highly offensive that when you've got decisions being made so far away without understanding the context, especially since it's this community here that's going to have to live with the consequences of that. So I notice Paul's made a note of it. He'll, uh, he'll attempt to raise it in the legislature over the coming days. Thank you. Danielle, my name is Bill Bridger. I've spent uh, most of my life in uh, conducting and building uh, science, engineering, and medical research in the mm -hmm. province, yeah. now retired. But I'm very concerned about what's happening uh, with respect to science uh, uh, funding and organization in yeah. the province. Um, when Peter Lougheed was Premier, he uh, had a vision, set aside uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from mm -hmm. the Heritage Fund to create the Alberta Heritage Foundation for Medical Research. Mm -hmm. uh, a decade later, two decades later, uh, Ralph Klein did the same thing to create the Alberta Ingenuity Fund. Yeah. And there are many other organizations in the province that make it special, that attract people from all over the country and all over the world yep. to work in such a rich environment, yep. past tense. The uh, current government has uh, uh, decided to follow the same pattern as they have in many other situations yep. and uh, centralized uh, under government control. The previous ones were arm's length, right. decisions made by scientists, uh, these are now amalgamated into a, uh, a provincial umbrella for which ministerial con uh, decisions are, are uh, the, the element. In other words, yeah. the question, senior bureaucrats please. will be able to make to be able to pick winners. Yeah. I wonder if your party has any policy or if you have any opinions on that. I've met with uh, John McDougall, who was the former head of the Alberta Research Council, and he had set up the organization in 1997. And I think, wow, what an absolute jewel that is. And I'm, I'm gravely worried that this new centralized funding model is going to destroy what they built there. As I understand it, they had 12 different research agencies that have now been amalgamated under four. And ARC is one of these ones that's now coupled in with three others that have a totally different culture. At ARC, they worked in partnership with industry. They had revenue generating. And as I understand it, I think they had joint licensing over the ultimate um, uh, products that were created out of that, which is a seems to me a perfect public-private partnership because the, the worry I have is about funding particular businesses directly with taxpayer money, as we're doing with EPCOR and Transalta and this uh, Swan Hills Syngas for the uh, carbon capture and storage. Funding through uh, research agencies and allowing them to maintain rights over the products that are created and then ultimately license them out seems to me to be a perfect, uh, a perfect middle way to allow business to have that bridge that they need to help with commercialization, but to make sure that taxpayers who are funding the research can ultimately be the beneficiaries of it. So I agree with you. I think that the, role, the, the approach that they've taken is very troubling, and I'm going to watch and see what happens as it unfolds. My, uh, my uncle works in, in 
in the Alberta Research Council as well, and I know that there's uh, some some concerns that it's not going to be able to maintain the kind of culture and the kind of success it had in the past. So thanks for raising it. Sir. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Thanks very much for sharing your, your vision with us. Um, Southern Alberta is largely an agricultural economy. Mm -hmm. um, some farmers, small farmers in particular, are going broke. They can't make yeah. ends meet. Uh, I didn't hear you mention agriculture, mm -hmm. but perhaps you could tell us what you would do for agriculture were you to be elected to government. Right. When I was um, on the campaign trail, I ran into a lot of people from the beef producers and hog producers, as well as those who are in, in crops. We, whenever, whenever we were talking about an agriculture strategy, it came clear to me just how complex the area is. I think there aren't any simple answers on agriculture, and I certainly don't have them myself. I'm grateful that, that Paul has a, an agriculture background because he's able to help steer me through on a lot of issues. We, we've got water rights as one of the things on our agenda over the next couple of weeks to be able to develop a, a policy for. And water is going to be a huge, huge issue for us going forward over the next 10, 20, 30 years. What I would say about agriculture, I've, we're, we've launched a couple of task forces. The first one was on MLA pay and perks. The second one was on energy policy. We want to develop an integrated energy policy that also includes the environment. The third one we'll be launching will be on agriculture. I've identified a couple of co-chairs that will be able to see us through that, one on the livestock side and one on the, on the crop side. Uh, the main thing I think our members want to see is they want to see policies in place that will make agriculture profitable again. We have a great history in this province of having agriculture form a huge base for our GDP. I think that there's a huge opportunity going forward for agriculture to continue to add to our GDP. The question is, how do we deal with the issue of international subsidies? Can we really compete against the American and European subsidies in food production? And how do we compete in that case? One of the things we have to look at is how do we remove some of the regulations on our livestock industry in particular? The excessive regulation that we have in Canada adds $80 per head of cattle to, um, to our livestock producers. It's crushing them. We have to find a way to reduce that regulatory burden. And I think that's going to be the same across a variety of um, of agricultural pr pr uh, producers, that we have probably the biggest thing we could do is get government out of the way. The second thing I think we need to do is make sure that we are continuing to keep the community supports in the community. Because why would a, a young uh, why would a young guy stay in a community to take over the family farm if there isn't a local school to send his kids to and if there isn't a local health facility for him to get his medical attention and if there isn't a local nursing home for him to go see mom and dad as they age? What I worry about is that we seem to be moving towards a system of centralization of these kinds of services for the same kind of reason that I mentioned before is that there is an attitude that is, if we centralize, we can save money. But I think we have to be very conscious when we're doing that and closing down these facilities that we're making rural economies less vibrant and less attractive. So we can't be doing that. The third thing I would say <clears throat> is we have to reconnect the urban consumer with the rural producer. Part of the problem that our, our producers are facing is the hysteria that erupts every time there's a new unfamiliar disease. 
whether it be mad cow disease or swine flu or avian flu, the media always finds a, a fancy way to name these that causes maximum terror. And what? And when you look at the actual level of risk, it's minuscule compared to the level of foodborne illness and, and death that results from, say, E. coli or salmonella. Why is it that we have such tolerance for large risks and zero tolerance for minuscule risk? I think part of the reason for it is that we have this disconnect between the rural and the, ur the, rural and the urban. And I can tell a story that illustrates this. My young niece... It was eight years old when she went to a petting zoo. This is the first time she got to play with chickens. She thought it was fantastic. They went home and they had chicken for dinner. And she said, Mom, isn't this great that we've got the same word for different things? And my sister-in-law said, well, Emily, what do you mean? And she said, well, there's the chicken on the farm, and then there's the chicken that you eat. <laughs> so now she's a vegetarian. But, uh, <laughs> but, that's, the, but that's, that's another part of the problem that we have, is that as soon as when, when, when consumers get freaked out about um, these minuscule risks, what ends up happening? We end up loading more regulations on producers, and we're making our producers unprofitable as a result of that. Personally, I enjoyed the chicken. <laughs> uh, my name is Keith McLaughlin. I have a question about uh, your statement that we have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. Yeah. Uh, I read the UFC report that came out a couple weeks ago saying that we do have a spending problem, but there is other reports that suggest if we scale the numbers a different way, for instance, to GDP, that Alberta, in fact, is a mediocre spender at best. Um, according to GDP, Alberta spends about 13%, while the national average is above 20 um, So I think that's to be disputed a bit. And I was wondering if uh, principally this revenue problem is caused by the flat tax. So I have two questions about the flat tax. Um, one, basically, is... How can Alberta have a spending problem if studies show that we could collect $10 billion a year more using a progressive tax system and um, therefore not have a deficit mm -hmm. and still have the lowest taxes in the country? Mm -hmm. And secondly, how can a flat tax be fair when middle-class income earners in Alberta are paying more than their counterparts in B.C., Ontario, and uh, Manitoba, and who's getting off... The, with, with the savings, it's mm -hmm. actually the super wealthy in Alberta. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered, how is that fair that the people who make less are taxed more in this, in this jurisdiction and the people who make more are taxed less in comparison yeah. to the other parts of Canada? Stay there just in case I, um, in case I miss some of the, the questions that you asked. The, I, I guess I reject the idea that the more your economy grows, the more government has to grow. So you can, you can measure it that way, but the measure that you've just put forward means that um, it's a recipe for continued growth of government, just basis, just based on the, the size of the economy. And I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. When the economy grows, for sure, you need to have more money spent on infrastructure. But you've got more people working. Um, so you presumably have less need to spend on social programs, which means that you could make the argument that the richer your, your province is, the more people are able to contribute to private charity and the more they're able to take care of themselves and their families. So you don't necessarily need to see an increase in the growth of government along the same scale. I mean, that's a debate worth having. But I prefer to look at per capita spending. And on per capita spending basis, Alberta is the highest spending province in the country with the exception of Newfoundland and Labrador. And the problem the problem with that is that we're only getting mediocre services. We're, our 
healthcare system, our education system, our post-secondary system, nursing homes, they're not far and away better than what we see in British Columbia or Ontario or elsewhere. And arguably, we've got better social services in other provinces like Quebec. I mean, Quebec has $7 a day daycare, even though we're spending more money here on a per capita basis than they are there. That suggests to me we're doing something fundamentally wrong here. And it doesn't do us any good to be wasting money if it means that we're going to be cannibalizing other types of priority spending. The more we spend on health care, and it's growing completely out of control, the more it squeezes out what we can spend on K-12 education, on post-secondary, on others. So there are very good reasons to make sure we keep our spending in line. And I happen to be a, a, a fan of the single-rate tax. I think that the... Um, the, you, can, you can make all kinds of calculations about how much you can increase and how much revenue it would generate. But when you start moving to a very progressive tax system, what happens is people hide their money. They find ways of tax sheltering it. They find ways of moving it offshore. They set up in corporations so that they can pay a different way. They go into the underground economy. So those numbers often can be misleading, just doing a straight-line calculation. When you have a nice, simple, single rate of tax, then it reduces the incentive for people to go and find all of these different loopholes to be able to shield their income. Plus, I think the approach we've taken in Alberta, where the first, Paul, you'll have to help me with this, I think it's the first $17,000 a person earns is tax-free from a personal income tax point of view. I'd far rather see the, the federal government follow what we've done in Alberta and move to, why, couldn't, why can't we have a system where at the federal level, the first $17,000 worth of income you earn is tax-free? So from a fairness point of view, I think that in Alberta they've done a fairly good job of making sure they take care of those who are at the lowest income level and really shouldn't be paying any tax at all. We do a much better job than any other province in that regard. And I think they've managed to remove the distortions by having an excessively progressive tax system. Once again, I know that this is all open to debate, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't mind the approach that we've taken on that front. Next question. Hi. My name is Bonnie Ferris. Um, I actually have a party sustainability question. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about how uh, political change traditionally occurs in this province when you talk about the United Farmers, yeah. the Social Credit, and, and the Lahi Conservatives. Um, what does your party plan to do, should they ever form government, to prevent themselves from morphing into uh, what you call sort of the rich political machine? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's all that healthy, frankly, to have the dynastic kind of governments that we have here. The, we've had a government now in power 38 years. The social credit before it was 35 years. The United Farmers, what were they, 17 years? Um, I think that uh, there's a reason why we do that. As long as a government is providing good government, we're pretty well prepared to let them go and do their own thing, take care of that business while we take care of our families and our businesses. So there, th those trends have happened in history. But I don't know that they're especially um, healthy because I think any political party that is in power for too long ends up developing these same kinds of problems that we're seeing with the PCs. There's an immense sense of entitlement in this party. And uh, the liberals and the NDs have experienced this a lot longer than we did. The kind of intimidation and bullying that happens for people who say that they're supporting another political party, that's outrageous in a political system. The kind of experience Paul had when he was running in Cardston Tabor 
Warner, with mayors and Reeves being told, well, you know, if you want to access all that money that we have up in Edmonton, you better, ha- you better elect an MLA with the PC banner so that they can help you find it. Or the different associations down there being promised money but told, well, we'll wait to announce it until after we see who you elect. That's a party that has become so entitled that they cannot see the difference between the fact that they are that there's a difference between government and party. I think the more I hear those kinds of stories, the more it makes me want to continue to build our party because I think that that is a very dysfunctional system to have. People should be free in a democracy to support whatever party matches their values, and they should be free to support what uh, whatever person is going to best represent them in the legislature. What we found in the last few years is that the the PC party is not necessarily the best party to do that. A lot of people have opted out. Sixty percent of people chose not to vote in the last election. I think the fact that we're on the scene has assisted in helping all parties to see that that ideas matter again. We have the NDs releasing a health platform. We have the Liberals who have just released an energy platform. We're going to continue to to release policy as well, and I think that Albertans are going to have more policy to discuss, more ideas to discuss than they have in recent years. I think that's all very healthy, and I hope that we have a a hotly contested race in in 2012 where, where every single riding is no longer a safe seat for the progressive Conservatives. So will I say that uh, our party will never become like the Socrates or the, the PCs? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not setting out to build another dynasty. I'm just uh, setting out to sweep the guys out that have been in there far too long. <clears throat> Next question. Thanks. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much uh, for a very enthusiastic uh, delivery today. Uh, I was particularly glad to hear about your view about a, uh, an, an oncoming boom at a time when we were in this uh, global recession. Mm-hmm. My concern is that uh, my view is that uh, in government we've had too much corporate type of, of administration, mm. short term, uh, not enough long term planning. Um, we now are in a in, in a very changing world. It's changed very quickly. We're into a global situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we advance through this next period in Alberta, we're going to be in competition with China. Mm-hmm. We're going to be in competition with India, mm-hmm. big time. And unless we can keep up to them, we're, our, 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 we're going to fizzle out. And China already has 500-mile-an-hour trains operating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. What have we done? through these booms that we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what leadership is the, Red, the Wild Rose Party going to give in long-term planning mm-hmm. that will d- deal with these problems of transportation yeah. so we don't have gridlock in Calgary and Edmonton? Yeah. And where we're not spending these huge amounts of money putting in new roads around Calgary and around Edmonton that are incredibly expensive and incredibly wasteful. When we could have a metro system, if we make the investment to begin with, that will prevent all of that and prevent the terrible waste of of urban... of uh, rural space yep, for urbanization. It. You've got it. So what leadership will you give us there? Well, there's a couple things. Um, in China, as I understand it, they actually build ring roads before the development has <laughs> gone out to that level so that they can build it a lot less expensively. seems like in Calgary we decide to wait until there's a lot of additional uh, construction, which then requires, as you say, an expensive retrofit. We also seem to, in some of our larger cities, build infrastructure that is uh, outmoded within 10 or 20 years and needs to be redone and upgraded again. There's a couple of things I think we need to do. One is we need to have a better balance between 
where the revenues are generated and where they're spent. I mean, we talk about how much money we spend we send to Ottawa. The federal governments take the biggest chunk. But the next biggest chunk comes at the provincial level, and the smallest chunk of all comes at the level of the municipality. So we've got the same dysfunctional system in our province that we rail against at the federal level, where we send a boatload of money to Ottawa, and then Ottawa makes all the decisions on how it's being spent. We do the same thing. We send a boatload of money to Edmonton, and then political decisions are being made on how it's being spent. And they're not always being ma- being made in the best interest of the community, the communities where those revenues are being generated. We take the view that the revenues should follow or be at the generated at the level of the service provider. So we would like to see more local revenues generated. One of the things that I, I've talked about on the leadership uh, campaign was allowing municipalities to take over that portion of the education portion of the property tax so it stays in the community where it's generated. We've got this dysfunctional system right now where you've got the local municipality, which has the least amount of money, collecting all of the taxes, sending half of it up to Edmonton to be distributed, and it was between 77 different grant programs, not including the capital side, and then the municipality again having to hire grant uh, people who were who spent all of their time filling out grant applications to access one of those 77 different pots of money. It makes no sense. If we could leave that money in the local community and start collapsing and eliminating a lot of those transfer programs, I think we would eliminate, eliminate a lot of unnecessary bureaucracy, and we would make sure that the local municipality had the resources it needed. That's one. The second thing, though, is that the AUMA has talked about having some kind of revenue-sharing arrangement. And Paul is also a big enthusiast of this as well. If you could say, we know that the provincial government generates a lion's share of revenue from resource revenue, from personal income tax, from corporate income tax, but that money is actually generated in the local community where those people and businesses reside. So if we have some way of dedicating a certain portion of those revenues to come back to the municipalities where the the people live, I think that would also provide the long-term sustainable funding for capital projects that we need. The, the third thing I would say is the issue of uh, commuter rail, which I think, I think you're bang on. What we see in the big cities is a lot of talk about having greener communities, and yet they continue to grow out and out and out. And the more they grow out, the more that costs on an infrastructure side. Uh, my husband is a big enthusiast of the high-speed rail, a, a, pro, a proposal for a high-speed rail between Calgary and Edmonton. Um, so he's, he's sort of the biggest lobbyist in my family about those kinds of things. I'd like to see some more commuter rail. And we have seen this in Toronto with the GO train, where communities like um, Okotoks in in the Calgary area, Okotoks, Strathmore, Cochrane, you could end up having rail lines. I don't know that Lethbridge is all that well connected to the rest of the province as well. When I had to come down here by transit, I had to take the Greyhound. I think that was the, the only way I could get down here. But you can start building a lot of those lines. And what will happen is it will support the growth of the communities. We're looking over the next... I've talked about oil sands. We're looking we over the next... We only have a few minutes left, and we have three more questioners. Please keep okay. it short and the response short. I've been cut off. Hope that answers your question. Sorry. He told me he was tough. Uh, Emil Gunlock is my name. <coughs> um, I preface very, very briefly. Uh, re- you kind of remind me of one of my kin talking about me from Oklahoma. Honey, ma'am, I just love to hear y'all talk. (laughs) (laughs) But my concern is, number one, you're swinging at the civil servants, okay? Um, 
anybody that knows anything about government knows the civil service has and will continue to run the province of Alberta. Mm -hmm. The elected representatives, as Paul can attest, have very, very little, if any, input in how our province is run. Mm -hmm. How could we change that? I would say the um, the civil service, to me, I, I look at it in two different chunks. I look at this management chunk and then the frontline workers who are, who are doing the work of government. So when I'm talking about leaning things out, I'm talking about leaning out that management layer and empowering frontline workers. I've already met with the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees a couple of times. And I, I think, t to me, this is important in making sure they understand where our party is coming from and the kind of things that we would like to see happen. I think that the solutions for finding efficiency in government reside at the frontline workers. I've talked to a, a number of civil servants, people who've retired recently, who said what happens in the civil service is there are people who come in thinking they are going to be the best darn public servant anyone ever saw. And then 10 or 15 years in, they get demoralized because they've come up with good ideas, it floats up a couple of layers and then gets knocked down. And so after being in there for 15 years, they think, oh, well, I only have another 15 years to go before I get my pension. I can pension out and then I can go do something else. And to me, that's a pretty demoralizing way to spend your career. I think that um, if we develop a system where we empower frontline workers, allow some of their good ideas to be implemented, become a partner with them in delivering high-performance government, I think we'll all be much better off for it. There is... Um, one of the conversations I had with the Union of Provincial Employees, and this is where we were in 100% agreement, they said part of their frustration is that when government goes and decides they want to contract something out, they never give the public service union the opportunity to bid on that contract. In other jurisdictions where they have tried to find efficiencies in government, and New Zealand is a prime example, they allow the public service union to bid on a contract that they had previously been providing 100% under the government umbrella. And what an interesting ha thing happens, they often win those contracts because the, you've changed the incentives once you've allowed that to happen. And it's happened in Indianapolis with, with garbage delivery. It happened in New Zealand with the port system. I think that we have to look at our civil service really as the resource that they are. I don't have a hostile attitude about um, about the, what the civil service does. I just think that we've got a lot of really good people who are trapped in a system that is not working all that well for them, and it's not working all that well for Albertans. And we can make it work a whole lot better. Two quick questions. Mike LeCormick and Chair of Friends of Medicare Lesbridge. And, and thank you for coming and giving us uh, about the, uh, the uh, wild rose. My, uh, I note with interest your comment that not all of the Canada Health Act would necessarily apply. And um, I would, I'm interested in knowing what you and the Wild Rose feel about $3,000 for memberships in mm -hmm. clinics such as the Koopman in Calgary mm -hmm. and more of them across the country, even larger, maybe four and $5,000. Yep. And also that people needing needing a hospital bed, have to pay several thousand dollars for the bed or a rental of it going into a DL f facility. Mm -hmm. well, I think you've identified something important, and that's the, the Canada Health Act is 
it allows for a number of practices that I think people are quite surprised by. So the Copeman Clinic, for instance, can charge $3,000 per patient because what they have argued successfully is that because they have non-insured services on their staff, whether that be for dietitian services or nutritionists or physiotherapists or a relationship with chiropractors, it's the non-covered services that is being paid for out of that $3,000. I mean, you can, you can dispute that. Um, as I'm sure you might, but the, that is the, the way in which the, the act has been interpreted as I understand it. The, I mean, it's, it's not ideal. You don't want to have a situation where people can't get the access that they need because they have barriers in, form, in the form of cost. But we have a situation now where people are not getting the access to the service that they need because we have immense long waiting lists. We've got people waiting two and a half years for knee or hip replacements or cataract surgery or back surgery. And I think we have to do what we can to be able to reduce those overall waiting lists. I've talked to somebody about primary care reform because I think this is going to be a pretty important area for us to get right. If we can restore the role of the physician as being the person who is the principal caregiver of a patient and have a relationship with that patient, I think we're going to end up with much better treatment of patients. The way we fund our doctors right now, where we pay them on a per-visit basis is creating a lot of problems. It would be like I'm thinking about if we funded education this way, we would pay one fee for a school providing the music program, then another fee for the art program, then another fee for math, then another fee for education, another fee for a field trip. We would never think of funding education this way. Instead, what we do is we fund education on the basis of a block grant per student, and we say, here, deliver the entire menu of educational choices with this amount of money. What has been proposed to me, and I think we've had a couple of successful, pri- uh, uh, pri- or a couple of ex- successful pilot pro- programs on this, is paying doctors the same kind of thing, a set per patient fee, and asking them to provide the full range of services for that patient in a given year. When, when this kind of approach is taken, it allows the doctors to then bring in all of those additional specialists that we were talking about, the dietitians and the chiropractors and whichever else, without forcing patients to pay additional money out of pocket. And I think if we were to, to reform primary care in this way, br- extend the success of this pilot program, we would probably be able to get a greater capacity of service for the number of patients that we have. We would allow people to ha- reconnect their relationships relationship with their doctor so that they don't end up having to go to emergency rooms when they get sick or their kids get sick. So I think there's a lot that we can do on that front. I think that um, it's quite clear that user fees and co-payments are offside with the Canada Health Act. So our members, as I mentioned, have given us clear direction that they want us to operate within the Canada Health Act. So we have to make reforms to the system that are not going to impose a bunch of excessive and additional fees on patients, and we're committed to doing that. So I, I hope I give, gave you some example of how we might approach One it. One final quick question, because some people have to get Good afternoon. To My name is Bal Bura. Thanks for coming and speaking here, yeah. Danielle. My question is about diversification of the province's economy Mm -hmm. and also revenue source. Mm -hmm. Alberta has brought a lot of resource revenue, and our present government had mismanaged it, and they have not created any other alternative source of economy. Mm -hmm. We depend heavily on resource revenue. So I have two questions. 
Number one, what you got for diversification of the economy? Mm-hmm. And number two, what have you got another source of revenue? Mm-hmm. So we don't heavily depend on the oil revenue mm-hmm. or the resource revenue. Thank you. Thank you for the question. I think I'm going to give you a disappointing answer, though. Um, I, I don't believe it's the government's job to diversify the economy. I think we have wasted in the past billions and billions and billions of dollars on a failed effort to have governments try to pick the winners that are going to be the industries of the future, whether it's for um, pulp mills or magnesium plants or uh, slaughterhouses or airlines. There's just a litany of billion-dollar boondoggles in our past. When I look, I think any politician who will tell you that they know what the economy is going to look like 30 years from now isn't telling you the truth. Because when I look back 30 years from where we are today, back to 1980, and I think about the kind of lifestyle my family had back in 1980, we didn't have a color television or cable. We had the rabbit ears on the TV set with the three television. There you are. Yes, exactly. We didn't have a computer. We didn't have, um, I mean, I still didn't, I didn't even have a calculator in class. I still had to do math and long division the long way. We didn't have GPS. We didn't have wireless. We didn't have all of the change in fiber optic technology, satellite technology. I have no idea what the economy is going to look like 30 years from now. I think the, the goal of government and the role of government is to create an environment here that is going to attract those visionaries, those entrepreneurs and risk-takers who can see what they think is going to be the vision for the future. I think that we've lost some of that reputation here. I think we need to have a low base of taxation, which we do, but we also need to have a streamlined regulatory environment. We need to have good access to markets. We need to have good infrastructure. We need to have a highly educated population. And when we have all of those right ingredients, I think we'll be able to attract the people here who will help with the diversification of the economy. When we started out on the track of diversifying the economy back in 71, I believe the oil and gas sector made up 31% of GDP. Today it makes up 42% of GDP. After all of the effort that everybody has gone into to try to diversify the economy. And I think the thing we have to recognize about both the agriculture sector as well as the energy sector is there's a great deal of diversification happening within those sectors. They're becoming very high-tech industries. And as we develop more environmental technology that allows us to develop our resources in a more sustainable way, those technologies and processes themselves become a product for export and a way of diversifying the economy. So I still think that we have a lot of strength in our traditional industries. And I think that diversification is already happening within those industries. I just think we need to do a little bit more work on restoring the Alberta advantage so that we can attract more investment back to our province. And now I'm getting the hook again. So thanks once again for coming. I appreciate the time. Oh, sorry about that.